to episode 22 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week we're returning to our reviews of films set in Melbourne with On the Beach, the 1959 movie in which Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire visited Frankston. And we'll be sharing our picks from Mubi and counting down our top three end of the world films. But first it's time to descend into a world of animated bricks, Batman and bad guys with the Lego Batman movie. Computer, how do I put the Joker in Arkham Asylum? Quickest route, no freeways. Computer, do you hear me? Hello, Master Bruce. I've just taken away your computer privileges. Gasp! Sir, it's time for you to stop this unhealthy behavior. You can't spend the rest of your life alone, dressed in black, and staying up all night. Good night, Alfred. Sir, it's morning. You need to take responsibility for your life, and it starts by raising your son. I'm sorry. I literally have no idea what you're talking about. The young orphan you adopted at the gala. I thought I was being sarcastic. Director Chris McKay of Robot Chicken fame directs this sequel-ish to 2014's well-received The Lego Movie. I mention Robot Chicken because this film is sort of operating within the same postmodern rapid-fire mode of filmmaking. Will Arnett stars as Lego Batman, an arsehole with family issues. He accidentally adopts Robin, voiced by Michael Cera, and together they team up with Rosario Dawson's Barbara Gordon to fight a whole host of bad guys. Ray Fiennes, Zach Galafianakis, and Siri round out the voice cast. Yes, Siri. Uh, Andy, did you dig the way all of these blocks snapped together? Kind of. I think this mostly worked. I think there was enough going on to make it worth catching. But I also think that it's a film that, despite seeing it in a cinema twice, which I wish I could do for every film we review, I think it would be better to see it on DVD with the pause rewind function. Mm. Um, because there is so much going on here. Um it's like a, particularly the early opening scenes, um, which you know are just full of color and motion. Almost just feel like they're sped up at times, and I'm sure there was a whole bunch of stuff going on that I missed even on the second viewing. But I think there's enough charm. I think Will Arnett was really, really well cast. I think his voice is perfect for this kind of stupid superhero sort of role, which isn't very demanding. I don't think, I don't think it's particularly new either, but I think he has a lot of fun with it. And the audience I saw it with, the first time I saw it was with mostly kids who were much quieter than the adults. But I think more jokes seem to land for older viewers. Yeah. I kind of feel like I wish I saw it at home with a on a DVD, so I could fast forward the first half hour. Whoa! Because um, I just found it really unpleasant to watch. the The music is so aggressive. Um, you know, it's this heavy. I don't even know what, but like this really heavy music, and the action is really fast. You know, it's quite skilled editing, and really, you know, has a really nice flow to it. But the music I just found made me want to leave actually I know I was sitting next to you guys but I wanted to get up and leave and then it did calm down and kind of got a little bit more into it but I felt like the film itself and I didn't see the original Lego movie but this film particularly and I don't know if I would have had this thought if we were in a different place in the world right now but Will Arnett just reminded me so much in voice and also in Batman's attitude of Donald Trump. Oh my God, yes. And I just <laughs> couldn't, and he was like, I'm the best at everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the at the very end of the movie, he redeems himself, you oh know, God, as yes. this guy with issues. But I just couldn't forgive it for setting him up as this guy who we're still meant to admire and like think is like just some hilarious dolt. 
because he reminded me so much of Donald Trump and we just need to hate that kind of attitude right now. And I couldn't get past it and I I just really didn't like that the movie did that and expected that from, from the audience. It's funny that you mentioned that, Eloise, because I had the exact same response. Mm-hmm. I was just like, "You, this is <laughs> the Donald Trump mentality in a bizarre, hyper, postmodern, pastiche kind of film uh, yeah yeah in a in a way that is suited to his you know his style of operating or mm. or, or the um you know it says something about our t- the times that we live in i think yeah i think it's much more retrospective sure manifestation was- yeah yeah obviously it predates donald trump and i don't think it's a necessarily they've gone oh let's turn donald trump into batman no but i, don't I so got the yeah I, it's funny i thought the same things and i just can't i just can't forgive <laughs> A, you know, an attitude like that at this present time. Um, although, you know, he's, you know, Lego Batman. He's not impeding on the universe of real Batman. <laughs> um, they do reference the u- real universe. Oh, the, the oh they do. I really enjoyed that. There's two segments where they kind of montage back to the 60s and show us Adam yeah. West. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, which is yeah. always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. In small doses. I liked, like, I really liked that, that kind of the cool back humor, the, um, you know, references to basically Batman and Robin have to save Gotham city from this host of bad guys. And it's sort of every bad guy under the sun. We've got Voldemort, Sauron, all these like crazy pop culture characters. And it's fun watching them all sort of show up at the same time. Um, but I don't know. I just found overall, it just like got so, I mean, it was so ephemeral, this kind of film. I've already sort of half forgotten it. And the (laughs) action, was sort of unrelenting and I got a bit sick of it and a yeah. bit like exhausted by the loud, how loud the film was, yeah. so loud, and just like constant movement, constant, and people, you know, all of these throwaway lines that you couldn't really hear, I think, because there was just like a pulsating soundtrack and like explosions. And then you'd hear these characters making sort of throwaway references and gags that I just, they completely bypassed me because I couldn't really concentrate on them. So I don't know. I mean, I know it makes me sound like, like a grumpy old man, but it didn't, I don't know. There's something about this aesthetic, this way of filmmaking that I don't, that doesn't really gel with me. Yeah, I and mean, I was surprised how little it seemed to gel with the kids in the audience that I was seeing it with. Yeah. Because right. I was expecting a far more raucous um, reaction, but they, they would seemed far more engaged with the face painting, the fake tattoos and <laughs> free stickers and stuff you could get on the way in. Who wouldn't be? Well, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, which makes sense. But also I feel like the, the energy, the, like the number of jokes per minute sort of ratio that they were trying to throw in here is often the, like a move from an uncertain or unconfident director or producer where they're like, we'll have one for the dads and the mums mm. and then we'll have one for the kids. It's yeah, you know, yeah. sort of going on. This film, it just felt like everything was just like that. Have you seen the original? Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, the original. Yeah. yeah. I, I quite think, like the original too. Yeah. And I, I think, think a lot of people were really surprised because if you're making a movie about an inanimate object, then it's, you know, the bar is set pretty low. Like the Angry Birds, Birds movies kind of come and gone and there was the Pokemon movies I've never seen, but it has a really, really bad. Oh, and the Emoji movie is coming up. Yeah. Oh, which yes, I'm, now, yes. like ordinarily I would be like, oh, I have no time for this at all. But now after seeing the first Lego movie, I'm like, actually they could throw a bunch of you know, quite surprisingly pulling an emotional backstory into this, and along with a lot of creativity and ideas and jokes. And but don't, I, don't you find the whole thing ultimately very cynical? I mean, when I, I came out of the Lego movie and I was like, your evil guys, what, president business, you have a song about how everything is awesome because we're all conforming in our consumer society. It's a really good song. It's, it is a great song. It is a great song. And I love that he's president business. But this is an entire advertisement for Lego. It's saying that this mass-produced product is not not mass produce. It's like it's a 
a big fat lie, essentially. But it's also a big fat glue that glues together people from cultures all over the world. And uh, it's a whole positive reading for this. <laughs> just missing, I think. I want to bring up something, and maybe I'm going to sound a bit like a purist or something. I don't know. And I'm sure that there's more to it and there's more characters that deserve this kind of attention. But the representation of King Kong in the Lego Batman movie really rubbed me up the wrong way. So King Kong is a is, you know, in this hell in the clouds for bad people, for bad characters, <laughs> yes. you know, like bad just w- with no grey area at all. And then he comes out and he starts roaring and he's really destructive and I'm just like, there's no nuance to King Kong. And King Kong, historically, is a, a sympathetic character who is targeted by, you know, a bunch of people and, and called a savage when really he's just behaving in the way he does. He, he loves... Fay Ray, I'm referring to the 1933 movie right now, but he loves Fay Ray. He's not violent towards her, you know. He doesn't really want to destroy New York City, mm. but he has to because of the way that Big he's treated. Man. And I think that through time, in film at least, he's kind of still has those levels of nuance. Josh Nelson wrote a piece about the latest Kong Skull Island and said that Kong Skull Island kind of did the same thing and treated Kong as though he was a monster rather than, you know, someone who'd been mistreated and needed to be understood. His behaviour needed to be understood and framed in a certain number of ways, which I think even in the 1930s they were doing. So just, uh, you know, that's my my major gripe with (laughs) the movie. Well, yeah, and it's... it's (laughs) It, it might be a niche gripe, but it also speaks to this idea that the only thing that's getting humanised here is Lego Batman, who's, like, a massive tool. Yeah, I like, yeah, I yeah. don't... You're so annoying. Yeah, and or, yeah, annoying, exactly. So there's not even anything else redeeming about him, because what is redeeming about being annoying? Nothing. Well, uh, no, he's annoying, I find, in a really entertaining way. Like, the way he throws a tantrum like a child, where he's, like, throwing himself up the stairs, refusing to go to this yeah, party for Commissioner Gordon's. <laughs> <That> was funny. <laughs> yeah. I thought there were moments where which were really good, and I suppose yeah. that's yeah, that's that's quite good. That's you know a little bit of this animated physical humor, which yeah, can which be there could quite be more of, I thought, like, yeah. yeah, translate. And I have um, seen Kong Skull Island, and I think okay. it's true. There is not that much nuance. Yeah, there is a lot of a move from the Viet Cong to King Kong. Mm. See what they did there? Mm. Yeah. They both sound similar. They do, and um, this film kind of explores that sort of connection in a kind of interesting way, but there's no attempt to give much backstory or context to Kong in that film, just as a sort of a sideline. And yeah. ultimately, there's some good CGI, but I was a little bit disappointed with it, and it's a very, very poorly written film, even though there are some quite cool megafauna. Mm. Yeah, which I've got time for. I just... It's just, it feels so cynical and joyless and... Yeah, joyless. I mean, there was a little bit of... I liked some of the humour, particularly, oddly, at the start. I think we had the reverse yeah, yeah. reaction. I loved the sort of voiceover about the film studio oh, yeah. logo. Like, yeah. And like, was... oh, what's the, this Rat Pack logo? Um, oh, I quite enjoyed that yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah, kind of Those fun. guys are, but yeah. logo is It dope. felt like, yeah, deconstruct making a, a studio logo, you know, specific to that movie which has been done in the past you know decades ago yeah um, it's, it's done every continuously. Harry Potter film yeah I mean like the Marx Brothers did it for instance yeah yeah um, in their movies and so that I did find quite funny and you know quite clever but after that that kind of you know pastiche humour just really didn't so you're suggesting the me. first 10 seconds of the film it was downhill from there mm-hmm. yeah right. yeah not even the end of the opening credits. <laughs> anyway, anyway so, I, just, I think so I've that's learned Lego Batman. Mm, not for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, even on second <laughs> viewing, I'm still a bit like, mm, it's a bit six out of ten ish for me. <laughs> a bit disappointing. <laughs> 
And now to Cultural Capital Film Diary. Um, Australia's newest film festival is the Irish Film Festival, which is running from April 6th till 8th at the Kino Cinemas, and is featuring one of the highlights from the recently finished Melbourne Queer Film Festival, A Date for Mad Mary, which I saw and can highly recommend. The 12th Indonesian Film Festival runs from April 8th to 13th at Acme. We'll also find the film that we loved in our last episode, The Salesman, is screening daily until April 6th. Eloise, can you give us a lowdown on what's happening over at Melbourne Cinematheque? Uh, we've got the wrap-up of a Dorothy Arzner season coming up this Wednesday. Next week, a Walter Hill double. And after that, a three-week season of Coen Brothers films. Well, that's going to pull cool. the waters. Yeah. yeah, so Melbourne fans get along to that. <laughs> cool. Also at Acme and screening on April the 1st and 8th is the 30th anniversary revisit of Dogs in Space. And speaking of legendary films that were made in Melbourne and treat Melbourne as if it were actually Melbourne, unlike some films that shoot at Docklands, On the Beach... They pushed us too far. They didn't think we'd fight no matter what they did. And they were wrong. We fought. We expunged them. We didn't do such a bad job on ourselves. We're all doomed, you know. The whole silly, drunken, pathetic lot of us. We haven't got a chance. I won't have it, Julian. I won't. There is hope. There has to be hope. There's always hope. So On the Beach is perhaps the most famous international production to be filmed in Melbourne about the unexpected or at least undesired aftermath of a fictional nuclear war. The entire population of the Northern Hemisphere has, in the movie, been killed by radiation poisoning, as has apparently most of Northern Australia. Adapted from British-Australian author Neville Shute's 1957 novel of the same name, this adaptation became somewhat controversial in the end because it included a romantic storyline that Shute was reportedly much opposed to. But, as is mentioned by one of the interviewees in Lawrence Johnston's recent documentary about the film Fallout, how could you possibly expect Ava Gardner and Gregory Peck to face the end of the world together and not make love? (laughs) Written by John Paxton and directed by Stanley Kramer, This is a really sober, terrifying drama about the end of the world, when, as Fred Astaire's character says, humanity is doomed by the air we're about to breathe. Without indulging in Hollywood melodramatic tendencies, On the Beach is a quietly devastating film, and one that Melbourne should be proud to own, despite the city being, as Ava Gardner reportedly said, a great place to make a film about the end of the world. Andy, how did this film make you feel? Um, well, it made me feel I was very engaged throughout the whole f- film, and in the beginning, it was mainly because the f- mood is so somber, surprisingly somber. Yes. Um, that I really wanted to know about why could they sh- probably could have shot it all in California. Why do they feel the need to come to Melbourne? And then I started thinking, well, you know, Stanley Kramer obviously was absolutely in love with Neville Shute's book, and so he wanted to honour it as much as he could, at least in the opening parts of it so it is very fascinating to see you know the Flinders Street Station in the 1950s and the shots in Williamstown docks and Frankston and Canadian Bay and Mount Elias and all that sort of stuff um, and also almost the backstory I find almost overshadows the film itself because it is so it must have been so exciting to be here in those times and to see this you know production taking place and it's interesting to note that um, a lot of the coverage at the time they ignored what the film was about or the, you know beyond the title of it just focusing on the fact that Ava Gardner was you know in Melbourne and staying at the Hyatt or whatever to the film itself it's such an ambitious thing to try and put this book into a film that I feel like it jumps in tone an awful lot so there is so a lot of scenes of Ava Gardner in a swimsuit, you know, playing around, all this sort of frivolous stuff. And then within seconds you're talking about taking sleeping pills and 
um, having to kill your child to save, you know, so that they would, won't die a more horrific prolonged death, you know, after you die of radiation poisoning. So it's it's quite a lot and not always successful, but I think it was exce- successful enough to certainly warrant checking it out. I quite, so I think, oh, sorry. Sorry, I quite liked that, those jumps in tone, because I think that, you know, if you were living and you knew you only had a few months to live if you weren't going to be completely depressed and sad all the time you might very well go jumping around in a swimsuit yeah i I don't know see i feel like the juxtaposition then sort of imbues those scenes with that sort of dread and the you know they have they go to dinner parties and things and there's just like this sort of sense that they're all sort of about to die like that's literally out just outside the frame all of those scenes then take on this extra meaning of the fact that you know there's this apocalypse is coming and they, there's nothing they can do about it yeah and all of a sudden even after a moment of reverie they can pull back and and, and you see on their face it. that they're thinking oh my god and you know this what? is not lasting that is exactly what life is <laughs> so, we, so uh, i think it's such a wonderful distillation of the <laughs> the inevitability of death in a way that so few films manage to i don't know it really affected me on that mm. level I think Fred Astaire's character Um, says, you know, it's always been like this. We've always known that we're going to die. Only now we know when it's going to be. Mm. You know, he says that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. So, I don't know. That's the power of the film. Right. So, that didn't land for me. I thought there was far too much British restraint going on in this. There was there was very little emotional like expression apart from the occasional Donna Anderson's character Mary Holmes who's married to uh, Anthony Perkins' character. Oh, yes. She occasionally has a couple of emotional scenes which are really great and really powerful and she's a fantastic actress mm. who I'd never heard of before. And I feel like there was not enough of that. Like when everybody in is in the submarine looking at America, when they go back to visit San Francisco and the city is empty and totally deserted, cars are there, apartments are there, but there's everyone is mm. gone. No emotion. Everyone's just like really keeping it in and there's no along with the, no, the lack of emotional expression there's also no physical expression of radiation poisoning there's no like burning flesh or decaying or people coughing or slowly dying or anything like that it's just all off screen along I with the making really love, scene. love that I feel like that makes it all the more devastating for me because I you know and it's true that because this is a film and I haven't read all of the book I've only read the first couple of chapters there's probably much more of that in the in the novel and and obviously that had to be you know certain things had to be sacrificed in the film version but perhaps all of that emotion had already been experienced and expressed before we get to this point at which the film starts and so they they've all had their you know breakdowns and now they're just in this like catatonic state of acceptance and i feel like you know those moments where Ava Gardner gets drunk on the veranda and Ava says there isn't time. This is a bit later. She's talking to Fred Astaire's character. There isn't time, no no time to love and nothing worth remembering. So she's having these like really, and they're quite poetic, you know, I'll give you that. But, you know, these really powerful moments of regret for something that she can't regret because it's not her fault. But that's, that made it really powerful for me. Just that utter almost devastation Mm. of the yeah. world but also of the ability to express and handle human emotion yeah so i could have used more of that i really felt also yeah. felt like they exercised a lot of the um social implication like in a situation mm. like that there'd be more looting and anarchy I, I imagine at least in a modern representation of a film like this which i mm. feel like it could be remade pretty easily but i imagine there'll be a lot more emotion going on as well i almost feel like it was a product of the time and possibly the sensors that they couldn't go too far into the like the the social repercussions of mm, this sort of situation mm. because I 
from watching Fallout, it seems like you know, there was a government. You know, the Australian government had to be involved to be able to secure the you know, the use of the submarine and various other yeah, infrastructure yeah. they needed for the film. I feel like the um, the music was really stunning. I'm gonna. I I'm already on record. I think on Twitter as having said this, but I didn't love this film when I first saw it. I think I saw it about ten years ago, and I just think it was. I think I thought it was fine. And I had said that, and then I saw it a couple of years ago at MIF. They screened a 35mm print of it, I believe, when Fallout was released. Mm. And I said, wait, I I sourced my tweet. I said, on the beach, there isn't time, which is a quote from a film, still and forever prescient until humans finally succeed in ending their own lives on Earth. So there you go. That's a morbid um, <laughs> thought from me because, I, you know, I, that's probably inevitably where we're going and that is one of the reasons why this film was made. But I have seen it four times now and I really love it. I think it's stunning. I think the music really is really something special. So the music is composed by Ernest Gold, I think his name is. Well, I can't um, recall any music from this film at all besides Ross and Matilda Ross and over Matilda. and over and well, over yes, and the over. Fir- I think that was one of the reasons why I didn't like the film because oh, I felt like there's that four-minute scene towards the end where they're in, you know, supposedly Narbathong, and I felt like that scene went for 20 minutes of them singing that song, yeah, and I was like, yep. so I mean, it is also a motif throughout the rest of the score. Now I kind of find that really touching. At first I was like, oh, those bloody Americans, That's, that's they just think that we sit around singing that song. Like, <laughs> all night long but there is this other kind of motif that is almost like this atonal trill and it to me suggests trickling down the drain or something but in a really violent way and I'm just like is that what this world is doing like trickling down the drain basically and that's what that has recalled up for me the last time I watched it but yes there is there is almost much too much of of that I never need to hear it again when they are Ava Gardner and Gregory Packer in Narbathong and they're dancing and they're like having a romantic night and outside there are this group of Australian bushmen who are singing bloody waltzing Matilda. Only goes for four minutes, not 20 as I thought. But at this one particular line and they, the Ava Gardner and Gregory Peck pause and notice this line, you'll never take me alive, said he. And at that one moment, it's like the, that gruff group of them singing stops and it just becomes a single baritone and the camera circles around them. And it's this really incredible shot and the command of the camera and like the command of this guy's voice and the second layer of meaning or, you know, multiple layers mm. of meaning of that mm. line just becomes so powerful in that moment. I think it's stunning. Yeah, that is a beautiful scene. Um, I also really what I, what else I really loved about this was the, the number of canted angles that Kramer uses in this to yes. be able to like cram yeah. more faces into this a scene. Even extreme close-ups are given this kind of angle, and there's a running gag as well. Every time they go into the gentleman's club and they close the door, the picture on the wall next to the door is like slumps into an angle mm. as well. So it's this kind of recurring thing where everything's got off kilter. And mm. at first, for the first part of the film, I was like, he's trying to cram more drama into this because there isn't enough drama because there's so many like sequences of just people talking to each other and explaining mm. the situation and um and you know t- talking about the the logistics of having to deal with being isolated mm. um but then after a while it kind of I was like I actually no this is much more going on you know this is more of a representation of what's emotionally happening with these people um mm. and so I started to get a bit more appreciation but then he would do things like you know send somebody swimming towards San Francisco and just like very casually talking about how they knew they were going to die in a few days and they were already feeling sick and 
And I was just like, but, but this is like the most unimaginable mental stress you could possibly be under. And there's, there's like, it's, it's almost like being so underplayed. But maybe it's not anymore, you know, because there it's is... a calm acceptance? There is no escape at all. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, none of us can imagine what it will be like, yeah. but I just mm. feel like there is no escape at all. Yeah. And maybe that, that, you know, moment of havoc has passed. I, I, I don't know. It's a nice counterpoint to um, melancholia, which we will discuss in our mm. top three. Yeah, or something like <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> what's it called? Tomorrow. Tomorrow when a war began. No, the one with Jake Gyllenhaal and the uh, ice. Anyway. One yeah, of those, yeah, tomorrow. A weather, one. apocalyptic weather one. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, this anyway. idea of acceptance and I, I don't know. I just think... It's there and it permeates every frame anyway. This is like massive mm. anxiety about mm. this oncoming event that no one can do anything about. And so it becomes like this sort of signifier through which the rest of the film, for me, is filtered. And that's what I found really interesting about it, particularly as a Melbourneian too, because you see all these Melbourne locations, as you mentioned before, Andy, and they're sort of imbued with this weird sense of... It's this bizarre because you see people walking around the streets as if nothing's going on, and then, and then you also see them, you know, having these conversations about their impending impending doom. It's just, yeah, it's a very odd way to see Melbourne on screen. Yeah, and also I thought it was interesting. In the only interesting way, hint of religion is the Salvation way. Army outside the front of the Melbourne Library, at the mm. Victorian State Library. I was going to ask you, Anders, whether you thought this film could be made in 2017, like a film about the end of the world that could actually engage world leaders because, you know, you know yeah. Churchill read the book. Not an action film. JFK so read the yeah, book. Yeah, like, med- like a yeah. meditation. Chris Chev, they the screened the film in Moscow. There's like, yeah, this yeah, engaged yeah, a lot of people. Great. And, I don't know. They, but Moscow apparently wanted it to have a happy ending. Yes. Oh, there you mm-hmm. go. Well, I don't know. I feel like it depends on who you're talking about, but I feel like the Australian political class is uh, somewhat insular in their cultural engagement. This is my blanket statement. So um, I don't know how much attention they would pay unless it was... It, it's fun. It's just funny. It's funny. Actually, it's funny you mentioned this because it's funny thinking about the kind of TV shows and films that filter through, say, the journalism and political bubble when you see political identities mentioning films and the kind of ones that don't. And the ones that do are often, you know, quite safe, art house. Uh, well, uh, from my casual observation, anyway. There's a particular type, anyway, is what I'm saying here. So, would it be made today and have th- that much of an impact? I don't know. I don't think it would. I don't know. Well, think about climate change. Do you think climate change and, like, the coming global catastrophe mm. that is global warming, do you think we have a paranoid sensibility about that in our pop culture, the way that, say, they did in the 80s about nuclear mm. Armageddon or, like, mm. like this? Do you think that... I don't think it filters through to the same extent. No, I feel like there's been... That's sort of a mass level. Yeah, I mean, the only times I've seen politicians mention films is when they were... I think there's one case of a few people being asked what their favourite films were, and every politician answered The Castle. Ah. Because it's like the best thing you could say to a voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so really cynically, I don't really know. Sorry, I just wanted to mention this, Andy, given what you said about the film, your reservations, which are totally valid, but just interestingly, I had noted this quote down from the book because it's quite a lot more about they're going to the war and details of the war and and things like remembering and lack of records in future because they're all going to die, obviously. But there's this quote, and I can't remember what it was, but, you know, the narrator says, the general effect 
was one, and I assume it's, you know, of the city's scape, was one of boisterous and uninhibited lightheartedness, more in the style of 1890 than 1963. Anyway, just like, isn't that interesting that maybe that's kind of what Neville Shute was saying as well. Maybe, you know, he people just wanted to forget as much as they could. Mm. Forget the impending doom. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm not sure anyway. No, no, but I do feel like the uh, the logistics of it are f- it, more yeah. fascinating for a viewer yeah. than seeing people break down and especially stuff which yeah. you'll probably get pretty old pretty quickly. But I still feel that the strongest scenes in the film were from Donna Anderson. Who, Where she, yeah. And there's a scene involving a sleeping pill and her and mm, Anthony Perkins. Mm, it's just so powerful. Oh, it's remarkable, yeah. Yeah, you can She's, see it tick, tick over in her mind, yeah. the reality of it. Yeah, that was incredible. And then there was a later scene between them as well, which I think was also is powerful. And I feel like they almost they overshadowed Ava Gardner and Gregory Peck and even Fred Astaire, who are, was really, really great in this mm, film. Mm. It's great seeing get his dramatic chops you know, chance to shine. Yeah. Oh, it's a fabulous cast. Yeah. Really. I it's mean, it's quite extraordinary, really, the mm, people the who were thing. in this film. Yeah, but I, I was really surprised by her because I'd never heard of her before. And she's inher- in Inherit the Wind as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is another kind of message film. she said... In the documentary Fallout, you know, they're talking about what this what this film was for and what its message was and how Neville Shoot would be aghast that it's 50 years later and we still, you know, the politicians are still pursuing nuclear war, yeah. more or less, that they haven't learned their lesson. <laughs> Donna Anderson, the actress who played Mary, um, she said, we are a species on the earth and we are working towards destroying ourselves. You know, well, and yeah, then well, the movie, then the documentary kind of ends. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, where do you go from there? She, well, could, wow. Yeah. Well, that echoes a, a line that Fred Astaire's character says in the film, which is the trouble is you want a simple answer and there aren't any simple answers. The war started from the idiotic principle that peace could be maintained by arranging to defend themselves with weapons that couldn't possi- they couldn't possibly use without committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm, and mm, mm, mm. yeah, and and as people in Fallout say, you know, more and more countries have access to these now, and they can launch them at you know for more for smaller and smaller reasons. Yeah, you know, India and Pakistan or North Korea or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, a, a film I would definitely would like to see again. Yeah, it's a film that's I think worth it for any time, but I think I mean particularly now, all of these thoughts are I feel like on our minds just all the time. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. And so it's got an extra layer of devastation to it if you want to indulge in that well yes um, uh, anyway yes re- totally recommend checking it out I think it's on Stan I think it's Dreams on Stan neither of you saw it on Stan so no I did yes it is on Stan great good <laughs> yes. to know and so it's Twin Peaks just <laughs> want to throw that out there cool Couple, two months ago <laughs> May 22nd <laughs> May 22nd yep If you're a fan of streaming online, why not stream some films on Mubi? Mubi kindly support us and we give Cultural Capital listeners a free month subscription, free month trial subscription to Mubi. If you want to check it out, just go to mubi.com slash 
cultural capital. That's movie.com slash cultural capital. Andy, what would you recommend from the current selection on Mubi? There's a loads of great stuff at the moment, um, but uh, this week I caught up with Peter, one of Peter Greenaway's first films, which is a short film, well, 45 minutes, called Vertical Features Remake. There's a bit of backstory to me and Peter Greenaway that um, may... <laughs> we were privy to earlier in the evening, but may not be repeated. Yeah, probably, yeah, I think um, you can just uh, buy me a drink and I'll tell you the story uh, if you want to. But anyway, um, this film, Vertical Features Remake, is around for another 22 days, and it's a 16mm short film that was released in 1974, which combines a pseudo-documentary involving a mocking academic voiceover citing fictional academics um, about a mysterious character called Tulsi Looper, who uh, left a lot of documents in various uh, establishments around Europe, which various different academics collect together and then have uh, disputations about how best to realise this film. Um, so Vertical Features is, 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 like a lot of Greenaway's work, it's highly structured. It's a film about absolutists, and essentially Tulsa Looper wanted to make a, sh- a short film which involved photographing or filming structures in the English countryside that, that bisected the, the horizon. So he's, he basically films posts and trees and various other things that stand up in the English landscape. But he looked at wow. within one square on a, an ordnance survey map. But really, it's basically a film about film structure, and it's like a celebra- celebration and a criticism at the same time of academics and ways of looking at art. Uh, it's also he's obsessed with numbers as well. So it's a lot of this Peter Greenway's the birth of a lot of his obsessions that turned up throughout his uh, career. And if anybody who spent a lot of time in research for academia, I think, would find quite a lot to laugh at, although his sense of humour is very strange and it's only really... It's so dry and so po-faced and so British and arch that a lot of people just just goes over their heads, I think. And so I think... It, if you, But if you've had experience with academia and uh, British culture generally, then you'll probably find something to laugh at here. Cool. Uh, well, look, a quick recommendation from me, because I haven't seen the film, but I'm dying to see it. Tenebrae, Dario Argento's 1980s English language giallo horror film. If you've never seen a giallo horror film, totally recommend seeing them. They're an amazing genre unto themselves. He's a good director to acquaint yourself with. Ahead of the upcoming Luca Guadagnino remake of Suspiria, mm. which stars Dakota Johnson and I think has already been filmed or something. Oh, really? Or they're filming mm. now. It's all very it's all happening very quickly. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, check out Tenebrae. It's on playing on movie for another few weeks, I think. And if you have any interest in Dario Argento at all, um, Suspiria is screening three times over the next month at in this new um, remastered version at the Astor Cinema. Yes, for its 40th anniversary. Mm, which I cannot wait to see. Wow, cool. Um, so, screening on movie currently um, is this movie called She's Lost Control by Anya Markart uh, from 2014, which I haven't seen, but I'm really desperate to see it. It's about a sexual surrogate played by Brooke Bloom, which I don't know exactly the plot, but it looks like a painful, sober, provocative reflection on isolation, sexual intimacy, psychological profiles and life in New York City. Now, according to the movie website, it's on a user list, a user curated list called Bathtub Movies. Oh, wow. Um, And this has piqued my curiosity even further. (laughs) So bathtub scenes, you know, they can be serene and peaceful, but they can also be really sinister and violent. So I don't know to which anchor this one is getting pulled, but I'll report back and let you guys know. So I didn't notice this as a release in Australia. I haven't even heard of it or seen it around, so I'm assuming it hasn't made its way here. So it'll be really interesting to check out. There's 15 days left to watch that one, so I better get moving. (laughs) Cool. 
Okay, well, um, that's uh, the wrap-up for movie, but next, our top three end-of-the-world films. I'm going to tell you the story of the journey down the road not taken. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. What's your number three? Even okay. though you're not very into ranking. What's your number th- three? Well, I do have a very definite number one already, and those of you who <laughs> followed our Twitter feed may may already know what it is, even though this is obviously a delayed podcast, and you may as well just delete that little segment that I said. No, I won't. Um, <laughs> but it was almost going to be Take Shelter, Jeff Nichols' 2011 oh, film, um, with Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon. I think that's just a beautiful film almost flawless except for the last 30 seconds um but, <laughs> but i decided to bump that one for drum roll roger corman's 1960 film the last woman on earth <laughs> so this has a screenplay by robert town who wrote you know a number of really amazing films like Mr. Chinatown, Chinatown, well he may very, <laughs> may very well have done that on this film um <laughs> So it opens with this slow pan. This is very Roger Corman. Opens with a slow pan across a naked woman's body from the feet, legs up to her shoulders and her face. She's just lying there. It's a photo. All of a sudden we're just into it already. Like, oh my God, what's, what's going to happen to this woman? Can't be just one woman left on earth in Roger Corman's world. Shot on location in Puerto Rico. It's about three travellers who go swimming and bizarrely while they're underwater there's some sort of disruption or poisonous release into the earth's atmosphere and everyone else in the world dies except for these three people who were like under the water at the time and, <laughs> That's um, amazing. and then a whole bunch of stuff happens a la roger corman almost exploitation film so there's one woman and two men sorry i should have said that right um of course uh so yeah have very corman yeah so the trailer is very funny it says only they survived i think the voiceover and then there's the you've got text on screen shows two men separately one is the gambler and then cuts to the other the lawyer and then cuts to the woman and the film's title with this really dramatic music comes up so the gambler the lawyer and the last woman on earth hey yes (laughs) everyone loves corman right so cool yeah Wow, okay. <laughs> uh, for a very stark shift in tone, my number three is Frank Darabont's The Mist. Oh, uh, so, this is the one. end of a very small and specific world, a Stephen Kingian small town USA. His adaptation of King's novel from, I think, the 1980s, possibly the 70s even, quite, quite an old novel, stars Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden and Toby Jones, among others, as a group of people trapped in a supermarket while a thick mist descends on their small town. 
Marsha Gay Harden in particular is on fire as like this devout Christian woman who sees the mist as a sign that the apocalypse has started. Um, the supermarket basically becomes this small little metonym for their country, their small uh, small town USA, and all their problems sort of explode in the in you know the aisles. I won't give away the ending, but it's fantastically sadistic. Like it's just it's kind of frustrating, but in a in a really cool, interesting way. It's really really it's a really dark film really well made and I'm a sucker for like a good one location film that really mm. explores that location and I think Frank Darabont explores the supermarket like really really interestingly in this film too so yeah I totally recommend it it's great well, have you seen Dawn of the Dead yes it's yes good supermarket end of the world film yeah yeah exactly <laughs> did you know that um, The Mist was released also as a black and white film yes and he prefers the black and white mm. apparently that's close to his artistic one, vision mm. yeah no I haven't oh, seen that interesting. <laughs> yeah cool oh my number three actually funnily enough ties in with Take Shelter because it explores a lot of the same themes only did it quite a lot earlier mm-hmm. and my number three is also a film that doesn't have a lot of fans but and it's often overshadowed by the director's previous film which is Picnic at Hanging Rock and I'm talking about Peter Weir's film The Last Wave mm. which I think is just magnificently moody and weird and particularly for that time I feel like it was just a really bold move to do when you've got like the whole world going what are you doing next after Picnic at Hanging Rock he decides to tell the story of Richard Chamberlain's Sydney based lawyer defending an Aboriginal man who's unsurprisingly played by David Gillipool and a local group accused of an honour killing and so as soon as he starts taking on this he's always seen this character in his dreams before and so he starts having this like dream realities straddling these two worlds and soon a lot of the strange meteorological events start happening. There's a lot of strange uh, rain experiences and water starts playing this hugely symbolic role. So it's also like a, similar to Take Shutter as a story of one man being paranoid or perhaps prescient and this idea of an imp- impending apocalypse. But um, Peter Weir really takes this in really interesting way, like in an interesting way. He manages to like balance this fantastical and realistic world Really, really creatively, and often on a really low budget as well. So it's not like he's, you know, putting filling the sky with birds or anything like that. It's to do with Richard Chamberlain's gradual progression from being this really kind of connected, you know, effective lawyer to being a man who's starting to doubt his own role in society and taking all these, uh, these yeah, these symbols into his life and reading importance into them where a lot of people wouldn't. It also kind of touches on Aboriginal spirituality and land rights and climate change and all this sort of stuff as well. And you don't ever really, the end of the world is just kind of always there out of frame as well, like on the beach. And particularly the final scene I thought was really, really powerful. Mm. Have you seen this as well? No, I haven't seen it. Right, yeah, it's something I'd recommend. And I've got the Criterion Collection edition, because I think it was the first Australian film to be released on Criterion. Amazing. Which, cool. And it's so worthy. Okay, one, um, so just because you mentioned it again, I feel like I should say that I feel like on a regular day on the beach would be on my list of top three end of the world films. But, um, you know, for the sake of this podcast mm. and variety, I'm kind of introducing some others. Anyway, I haven't thought about where it would be and what film it would bump, but I think it would be on there. Cool. Um, anyway, but my number two is Kiss Me Deadly, Robert Aldrich's 1955 sci-fi noir, which is, like, super, super famous. It probably doesn't need me to say all that much about it. It's just got this incredible apocalyptic feel to it, even though you don't really know that it's about the apocalypse or about the end of the world until the last five seconds, basically. It's just like all great noirs. It's just very, very foreboding. So it begins with this shot 
which probably David Lynch has referenced <laughs> in certain films like Lost Highway, but, you know, a million people have. I mean, not to say that, that it's the only film that, that has ever done this, um, but with this terrific opening shot of Cloris Leachman running along this highway, uh, her breath on the soundtrack... And then you've got a car coming along and rescues her playing. And it's this, it does this incredible switch. The car radio is playing Nat King Cole's I'd Rather Have the Blues, which then becomes the like opening score music. So it does this switch where it shifts from degetic to, to non-degetic music. And it's really fantastic. But it's just the most stunning opening and then it's this incredible film. Ralph Meeker as Mike Hammer is a private eye, of course. He searches for a group of murderers who destroyed his car for revenge for the car, I think, but also for, you know, the murders, hopefully. So basically this is saturated in this apocalyptic fear for, for you know, kind of an unspoken fear, almost in the same way as on the beaches is unspoken, although they do mention it, but, you know, it's kind of more in, in a feeling of, of um, devastation than, than in anything else. Until the finale, um, it's still inconclusive, but I also just want to point out that even though this was 1955, it was made during the Cold War, and um, they opened Pandora's box on the beach. Oh, good call. Is that related? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, it was five years earlier, maybe not. Well, it was... Yeah, it was two years earlier than the book, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that they were not related, but... Um, I'm pretty sure Tarantino saw this film, too. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Interesting. Kiss Me Deadly. Cool. Look, my number two is Jimmy Murakami's 1986 animation, When the Wind Blows. It's quite a simple animation. It combines sort of stop motion with a more hand-drawn style. And it's based on this picture book that had a very formative influence on me personally as a child. My parents, for some reason, were big fans and thought it was suitable reading material for their son, uh, which was weird because this book and film essentially follows what happens when a nuclear bomb explodes on a small country town in the UK and the radiation slowly kills this retired couple. It's all very simple, almost fable-like. They talk about surviving world war ii as children they're sort of this british sense of you know she'll be right we'll just keep on get we'll do exactly as the government tells us to and everything will be all okay this kind of is the idea that they're um that they these characters espouse uh the husband in particular goes on about you know how the government hasn't let them down before his wife carries on her daily routine and you just watch as they slowly die from radiation poisoning it's awful and very sort of gut-wrenching and extremely powerful particularly i think in its simplicity it's so simple it's just like this retired couple in a country British town. They think they're doing everything right. They're following the instructions that the government like drops on, you know, in the pamphlets for them. But they, I think they misread one of the instructions and that sets apart this long chain of events. And it's just very, very depressing and very emotionally charged. So I think you've got to be in the right frame of mind to watch it. But I can see it was huge, really, really powerful and influential i think in british culture in the 80s you know it's sort of like a seminal seminal text of sort of the cold war yeah i remember reading that book as a child i mean very surprised that there wasn't any final happy ending no it was just no, so bleak nothing. <laughs> yes when the wind blows it's so, yes. yeah it's just like when the wind blows oh god anyway yeah <laughs> it yeah. sounds lovely yeah yeah no it's not at all um but it's amazing it is. yeah for sure good choice <laughs> 
Um, my number two is an essential film that uh, we couldn't possibly not mention, and that's Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which turns 53 years old this year. Mm-hmm. And so it manages, like, uh, as most people um, listening will probably already know, um, it manages to wring a lot of laughs out of the paranoia around nuclear war and the annihilation of humankind. It's also it was ridiculed at the time, which is I didn't realise quite how strong the kickback, the political kickback was to this film until I started reading up about it. Um, it managed to get like a lot of uh, criticism for being pro-Soviet, for being completely implausible, for suggesting that um, it would be possible for the Minister of Defence to be able to start a nuclear war without the president knowing, which actually turned out later on to be completely true. It's basically it's a hum- it's an amazing achievement for 1964 to be able to pull off a film like this. It's also often remembered just for being kind of funny for the final scenes for Peter Sellers' triple roles um, and for being like just loaded with sexual innuendos. So if you haven't seen this film for some reason, then you could probably just go to the Astor Theatre and they'll be playing it sometime <laughs> soon because it's pretty much a permanent rotation there, I think, along with a 70 mil version of Hamlet. So, um, yeah, this is like this film that I think also manages to take the, uh, the idea of nuclear war and just look at it in a completely new way in the way that On the Beach did. So... Cool. My number one is Richard Kelly's follow-up to the probably also kind of philosophically apocalyptic Donnie Darko, the film Southland Tales from 2006. So this has a completely bizarre plot and narrative outset, but I'll just do the best I can. Also, I could talk about this film for hours, so just tell me to shut up when you when you want me to. Oh, please, I'm dying <laughs> to know how this is your number one. So this film is basically just astounding, and I think about it super regularly. So Justin Timberlake is the narrator. He plays a, a returned Iraq War soldier. Um, so he narrates the opening, his words... In the aftermath of the nuclear attacks in Texas, America found itself on the brink of anarchy. World War III had begun, so you've got it set up. This is a film about global, the global acceleration towards the end of the world, weaving in crazy characters and ideas about such things as dissenting liberal extremist cells, neo-Marxists who have their underground lair at Venice Beach, uh, a think tank with a clear agenda and an ultimate search for a rare energy a.k.a. an illicit drug that could possibly save the world called Fluid Karma. Broadly, it's a film about a film star, Boxer Santaros, played by Dwayne Johnson, who vanishes without a trace, according to news reports in the first few minutes, then is discovered in the Nevada desert with his memory erased. Uh, Justin Timberlake's opening voiceover concludes, This is the way the world ends, repeated three times, not with a whimper, but with a bang. This ends up as a film kind of about a race to get on a giant ship called the Mega Zeppelin that might somehow be the only lasting vestibule after the end of the world caused by uh, widespread nuclear destruction. So as crazy as that sounds, it kind of gets even crazier uh, with a cast varying from Byling, Janine Garofalo, Amy Poehler, Beth Grant, Mandy Moore, (laughs) Sean William Scott and... A porn star played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. She and uh, Dwayne Johnson have a few scenes together, which is pretty good. Anyway, this is... I, I wrote about... I wrote a really big essay on this film during my undergrad, Andy. I think you'll like this. Using some references to Twin Peaks. Yeah, because Rebecca Del Rio is in this. Like, Silencio. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My Home and Drive. Not, oh. not for that reason. So I drew them together using Antonin Artaud's Theory of the Body Without Organs. <laughs> Just FYI, awesome. this essay will hopefully one day see the light of day outside of my university-like history. There's this 
terrific shot where Boxer returns from his case, like with his case of amnesia, and the camera is kind of circling around him. And the narration says someone had gotten under his skin because, you know, he's been kind of brainwashed, just presumably by, you know, the extreme left. So as it zooms in and says someone has gotten under his skin, the camera zooms into his back tattoo of Jesus. It's just, <laughs> it's so hilarious. Okay. Oh my God. Wallace Shawn as well. Oh, cool. Who says the ocean is a perpetual motion machine. So they've got this idea that the earth needs to survive, you know, on its perpetual motion machine. Anyway, um, it's poetic. It's ludicrous. It's dazzling. It's, it's over the top. Would you believe there's a whole bunch of really weird and fascinating imagery, part action, part musical, Probably all of it is satire. It makes almost no sense, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense. It's also two and a half hours. It's like two and a half hours, yeah. It's got this wacky compiled soundtrack, including music from Muse, Blur, and Moby. Okay, so (laughs) there are moments in this film, it sounds over the top, and it is kind of an action movie, I suppose, but it's kind of operatic and it's really cinematic as well there's this almost three minute tracking shot towards the end of the film that follows multiple characters through a party and just kind of weaves through people you know it uses a bunch of really beautiful imagery about the sky and it also is really interesting you know and i can kind of hopefully defend my use of arto um in studying this film but you know there are there are really strong ideas about ideas of like the post-human and um, where we will go after nuclear destruction concepts of like visual and spiritual sight as well that kind of are probably used by Richard Kelly to link to his other films ideas about reversing trajectories of space time anyway I just really love this film so two more things I want to say one thing is Sarah Michelle Gellar she says <laughs> it's a bit stupid she's being interviewed on the news anyway she says we're a bisexual nation living in denial because of a bunch of nerds who decided that sexuality was something to be ashamed of. I mean, how could you um, say no to a movie I cannot just like that? Exactly. From um, so uh, is this bisexuality explored in the film? Is this part of the end, the end of the world? No, she just believes in, you oh, know, right. being open about your sexuality. Her, Okay, so and at one point in the movie, she is watching Kiss Me Deadly. Right, brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Nice so one. the end, that's oh the God. conclusion of my amazing story about why we all need to watch... Southland Tales every single day. Right. Wow. Okay. I'm sold. I yes, really want to read this essay of yours as well. I want to look into this <laughs> inside the body thing. Yeah, anytime. I'll get it out there soon. Don't worry. <laughs> I can see the Twin Peaks side of it. I'm really keen to see the Southland Tales side of it now. Cool. Anders, what is your number one? Well, look, my number one was Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which is an amazing film, and I do want to give a shout-out to it, but I've just changed my mind. Please, everyone, go out and watch this film. It's an amazing portrait of depression and the end of the world, and Kirsten Dunst is incredible Mm -hmm. in it. Um, And it's beautiful, beautiful, beautifully shot. But my number one is one of my favourite films of all time. It's, and which I only just realised a few minutes ago, it's actually an apocalyptic film. It's uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's 1962 film Lecliss, The Eclipse. (laughs) So this is basically Monica Vitti and Alain Delon are this like young Italian couple. They sort of meet each other. She's like this bourgeois bored kind of, uh, she runs out from a, husband in the in the opening scene she's sort of i don't know she's living a life of idle boredom in the amazingly shot is it the eur 
section of Rome, the Mussolini-designed sort of exurbs, these sort of really modern, modernist, uh, sort of anti-human spaces that Mussolini designed um, in a in his sort of you know fit of fascism, and like now these sort of their apartments that sort of these sort of rich uh, Romans live in. Anyway, um, so she lives in this beautiful but also quite stark environment and she begins seeing well this guy played by Alain Delon who is a stockbroker begins seeing her and they sort of start this relationship now what makes there's a few things that I think make this film extraordinary one is every single shot in the film is beautiful like it's just so beautifully composed you can freeze it at any moment and it's just like stunning absolutely stunningly shot it's got a really great sense of humour, um, particularly these scenes in the, the chaos of the stock market in central Rome. And it's really concerned with how mid-20th century European life, what that was like, what that felt like. You know, they fly a private jet, they she's um, they inspect, like, she goes around to her friend's house and, like, they're looking at these exotic artefacts from, like, this African country that she's come from and they sort of they're quite sort of racist and sort of, you know, heavily problematic in the way that, but coming from, I think, a sense that they're just very bored people with, you know, nothing much to do in this be- these beautiful buildings. Anyway, what makes this apocalyptic is the film famously, and I'm going to spoil the ending, but um, the, the, they have this relationship, they build up this relationship between Alain Delon and Monica Vitti's characters, and they organise to meet at this street corner, and then famously the film Antonioni shoots the street corner after they've organised this meeting, and you don't see them at the corner, and then we get maybe 20 minutes of empty shots of these streetscapes, these big sort of fascist Roman streetscapes with sort of people walking hurriedly. There's sort of this sense of paranoia descends upon the film. We never see these main two main characters again. And then it just ends with this sort of zoom in on an eclipse, the, the eclipse of the film. And then it's like, Finn, that's the end of the movie. And it's just like this extraordinary... I, the first time I saw it, I was, I was quite blown away. I mean, it's this extraordinary sort of just like he rips the carpet from under the story that he's constructed and really sort of makes it seem it's apocalyptic in the sense that something may or may not have happened to to these people to to Rome I mean it's that's beyond the point it's apocalyptic in the sense that it's he seems to be suggesting that their life their sort of narrative they're constructed doesn't matter the the street corner does not give two craps about these to this couple that we've been investing emotionally in for the past two hours of this film so it's sort of it's really like not it's really as if you know none of that the human the human relationships that he sort of examines in in such detail in this film and all the things he traces about the suburban roman ennui the you know their their sort of lives there how what 1960s rome is like he seems to suggest that the human element is entirely irrelevant in the grander scheme of things and i think it actually I sometimes when I like to read too much into this film, I like to think that he's actually commenting on cinema as an art form and saying that actually in the grand scheme of things, none of these stories particularly matter. So in that sense, it's quite apocalyptic because he's sort of destroying an entire art form. 
that's probably reading far too much into it, but I, I, it's just such a powerful, amazing film that I had to mention it and rant about it at length. So thank you for thank you. No, indulging me. That's a fantastic <laughs> choice, particularly the last few minutes. Just the power yes. of absence. Yes, Looking at these, scene, these locations you've seen full before and then seeing them empty. Oh, Completely deserted, yeah. Incredible. Totally. Well, Andy, nice what's your oh, Well, my number one is a film that was Academy Award nominated in 2015 and is one of the animated Don Hertzfeld's finest achievements. And if anybody's ever seen any of his other films, then they'll know that that's a fairly big call because he's got a consistently amazing body of work. And this film is called World of Tomorrow. Um, it's narr- narrated by uh, Don Hersfeld's four-year-old niece, who he recorded while she was playing and painting, and then she asks questions that he incorporates into the film. But basically it's about a film in which, in the opening scene, um, this uh, little girl answers a telephone, and, and on the other end of the phone is a con- she has a conversation with her third-generation clone of herself 227 years into the future. So future Emily explains um, to Emily Prime, who she's constantly known as because she was the first, um, is that efforts in efforts to achieve immortality, more affluent members of humankind have developed cloning and poorer humans are reduced to using unreliable forms of life extension. Um, so future Emily transports um, younger Emily using a, um, a, a software called the Outer Net into the future where she shows her memories that she's recorded of her own life. So already we're kind of straddling time in this really, really interesting way. Um, and so she lets her watch these memories. Um, these include visiting a museum um, where a human without a brain is an uh, exhibition. And she ends up managing, going to the moon and managing robotic workers on the moon who she programs to have a fear of the darkness. So they constantly have to keep running and living in, living in the light. Um, she also falls in love with an amorphous alien called Simon. And uh, she opens, then she returns to Earth to open a museum of, uh, where she uh, showcases memories of anonymous people and, as exhibits. Um, she also shares the news that the world will be destroyed by a meteorite in 75 years' time. And her, the most amazing thing about this film is not only does it is it just crammed full of ideas, but it goes for 17 minutes. It's like absolutely phenomenal, wow. like the power. 17. That, 17 minutes. It's amazing to film. I don't know why everybody in this room hasn't already seen it. And it's also <laughs> ludicrous that it hasn't didn't win like Academy Award for Best Short Animation, which it was nominated for, and it's his second nomination. All of his films, like, it's very hard not to tear up at them because he's just got so much poignancy. He also uses 1950s styles of animation. I think he's the last, one of the last people left in the world using some, the same equipment that they used in the 50s. So he's, in his animation, he's kind of shaken that sort of weird way that, like, early Disney film, mm. like, animations do. And so it gives you this kind of, like, weird fragility and potency to all these characters. So in, in other things, like It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is his only feature-length film, which is a compilation of three of his short films, which kind of, you know, lead on, which is basically about a man dying of cancer and looking back at his life. And there's no reason to, like, make somebody think that they were going to want to need to see that film. But that as well, you know, it's just full of these, you know, really, really powerfully intelligent observations about life and, and death. And in this case, the end of the world. Wow. Did you have sure. any um, nearly but not quites? Melancholia, as mentioned. Take Shelter, as mm. mentioned. Mm. Cool. I was thinking 12 Monkeys would have been nice to rant about. Oh, yeah. um, the yep. World's End. Um, yes. Edgar Wright's movie. That's an interesting film. Mm, it is. Yeah. I would not have put that on there at all. I'm making a grimace face just for those people mm, listening. Yes, true. So anyway, but that's just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, the film just wasn't strong enough for me, but the previous two films I thought were amazing. And I've never seen Sidney Lumet's film Failsafe, which I gather is really, really good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like anyone else here has no. either. <laughs> right, well, we'll be back. Thank you for making it to the very end of um, <laughs> Cultural Capital, episode 22. Um, Eloise, if people want to chat to you online or like give you some sort of feedback about the grimace face you just made, for example, <laughs> how can they find you? If people can disagree with my film opinions at Eloise Low Ross on Twitter. 
Cool. And Anders? Uh, yep. You can come find me at Anders Furth on Twitter. Great. I'm at Andy Ricky on Twitter. Um, and if you want to rate us or review us on iTunes, we'd be very, very grateful. Um, you can follow us collectively on Facebook at the Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod. Thank you.